So uh, a proposed wealth tax has been in the news a lot lately. Have, have you heard about that? It is approximately a, a 2% tax that would be placed on fortunes of more than $50 million and a 3% tax on fortunes worth more than $1 billion. Now this tax would impact approximately 75,000 families. Don't worry about me and my family. We come in just under the line. We're going to be okay. But it's purported that it will raise an estimated $2.75 trillion over a 10-year period. Now, I am not going to debate the pros and cons of this tax. But I'll make a couple of observations. One observation that seems clear to me is that you, you can't legislate generosity. If you have $50 million or if you have $50 billion and you believe you need $50 million or $50 billion to live on, guess what? You're going to figure out a way to keep your money, no matter what the government tries to do, and, and there'll still be needy people in the world. Secondly, if the government were to be successful in extracting some of that money, after all the administrative costs... And the other pressures that come to bear on legislators have had their impact. What percentage of the money would actually be redistributed to those who need it most? To me, one of the biggest drawbacks of the wealth tax is that it takes the focus and the spotlight and it puts it on the rich people. And it puts it on their compassion. It puts it on their interest in giving, instead of putting the spotlight on our own hearts, instead of looking at our own hearts of compassion, instead of looking at our own desire to give, what does our compassion compel us to give? How compassionate are we? So you and I as believers in Christ should be compassionate givers. And I hope that God will convince us of that. I pray he will as we come to his word this morning. We are returning once again to Matthew chapter 6, the Lord's Prayer. If you're using a pew Bible, you're going to find that on page 811. If you're using your own Bible, you're on your own to find it. But once you've found Matthew 6, let's stand together as we hear read together the word of the living God. Matthew chapter 6, beginning verse 9, this is the Lord Jesus speaking. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let's pray. Lord, once again, we come to your word. We come once again to this prayer. We're just coming so often. Use even that to remind us of the centrality, importance of prayer in our lives. And as we come once again to delve deeper, more deeply into this prayer, Lord, bless us with understanding. Bless us with courage. 
to be the people we, we see that you call us to be and do the things you call us to do as, as we study your word. May it be, Lord, not through us, but through you in us, that we accomplish these things for your glory. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. This morning we return for a third time to this fourth petition, this fourth request of the Lord's Prayer. Jesus is teaching his disciples and us through them that we should ask the Father this, Our Father, give us this day our daily bread. I can't recap all that we have seen in the previous two weeks here, but let me just say briefly that when we pray this prayer, we saw that we are resetting our thinking every time we pray it. We remind ourselves that we are truly and absolutely dependent on the Lord for all things. The Lord must give us our daily bread. And so this request, when we make it daily, keeps you and me close to the Lord. And that's a really good thing. David says in Psalm 73, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. We don't want to perish, do we? But it is good to be near God. When we pray this prayer daily, we are reminded that He is the vine and that we are the branches. And if you and I do not stay connected to the vine, if we are independent from the Lord, if we are disconnected from Him, then then you and I are not going to fare any better than a branch that's cut off. It may stay green for a few hours, may stay green for a few days, but eventually it's going to wither and die. So praying for daily bread reminds people like you and me, people who are predisposed to be independent, that we really are dependent on the Lord and should not seek to be otherwise. Lord, give us this day our daily bread. Lord, keep us close to you. Secondly, we saw that praying this prayer means that we will be content with whatever the Lord provides for us day by day. And so praying this prayer every day prevents us from manufacturing our own contentment. And we spend a lot of time in our lives doing that. We're predisposed to that as well. And so we pursue things And we pursue certain lifestyles that we believe will make us content. But then we discover that that contentment is elusive because guess what? God has not designed his people. He hasn't designed you and me to find contentment in those things and those lifestyles. God has designed us to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. And when we find those things, we find contentment. When we pursue the Lord, we find contentment. When we invest in truly being a family on mission together, when we advance the kingdom as a family, we truly find contentment. And so Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God. And these other things will be added to you. The Lord knows the things to bring into our lives that will satisfy us and make us truly content. So praying this prayer leaves that decision to the Lord while we pursue better 
and higher things. This morning, we're going to look one final, one final requirement that this prayer places on us. In addition to requiring that you and I be dependent on the Lord, in addition to requiring that we, can, that we find contentment in what the Lord provides for us, it also requires that you and I be compassionate givers. I want to turn our focus back to the corporate aspect of this prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. When we began looking at this prayer two months ago, honestly, two months we've been in the Lord's Prayer. It's good though, right? Good prayer. I read this quote from Jonathan Pennington's commentary. He says, Christianity is inherently communal. A matter of life in the body, the church. Jesus did not call isolated individuals to follow him. He called a group of disciples. And do you remember the cheesy line that I came up with? I confess it was cheesy. Do you remember it? There is power in our. Who remembers that? There is power in our. And, And there really is. By God's design, you and I flourish. We thrive when we live together and pray together in community as a family. And so we pray together, our Father, give us this day our daily bread. Now the church throughout history has prayed this prayer together. Now imagine this. Imagine that you are right beside or at least in the same room as a person who does not have daily bread. Now imagine that that person is earnestly praying right beside you, Our Father, give us this day our daily bread. How do you think God will answer that prayer? I think it's important for us to to get a mental image of, of how God might answer this prayer. What options are available to God for providing daily bread. Obviously, he's God, and so his options are many, and they are varied. He can and has sent manna from heaven. He can, and he has, multiplied five small loaves so that there was enough bread for multiple thousands. Is that how we imagine That God will answer the prayer of the person praying beside us with manna or multiplied loaves. Is that the normative answer? Must we always expect God to do the miraculous in answering this prayer whereby he intervenes in the course of what's normal and makes it other than it would be apart from his intervention? Rain falls from the sky. That's normal. That's expected. Bread does not fall from the sky unless God intervenes in the course of what's normal. And when he does, then bread can come from the sky. Five small loaves normally feed five people. That's normal. Five loaves don't feed 5,000 or 10,000 people unless God intervenes in the course of what is normal. And when he does intervene, everyone is fed and 12 baskets full of leftovers are collected. God owns the cattle, 
on a thousand hills. His fortune is vast. And so too often we imagine that he should take 2%, 3%, and make miraculous provision for those in need from his fortune. Now I believe this. I absolutely believe that God intends to provide bread through miraculous intervention. And the truth is that God has miraculously intervened in your heart and mine. He has made our hearts other than they would be apart from His intervention. Without the intervention of His Spirit, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Do you believe that? Apart from His intervention, the heart is, according to Scripture, desperately wicked and beyond understanding. Apart from His intervention, people can keep for themselves significantly more than they need and be content to watch others go without. But when God does intervene by the miraculous work of His Spirit, we are no longer who we were. Is that good news? We are now alive in Christ. Is that good news? We are new creatures. The old has passed away. The new has come. You and I no longer value the same things that we valued before God miraculously intervened in our lives. His intervention in our hearts. He intervenes in our hearts so that we, God's people, can be the answer to the prayers of God's people. He intervenes in our hearts so that we, as God's people, can be the answers to the prayers of God's people. I want to spend the rest of our time this morning considering three questions. Three questions. And the, the first question is this. What is the Lord's heart concerning daily bread? Jesus said this. For you always have the poor with you. You always have the poor with you. And when Jesus says those words, he's really referencing words that his father spoke through Moses way back in Deuteronomy chapter 15. God was preparing his people to take possession of the promised land and to live their lives in that land that he was giving them as he ordered their lives. And so with God, there's consistency and continuity because God is faithful and unchanging throughout time. And with God, there is no shadow of turning. So who God was in Deuteronomy, Jesus continued to be, and that's why we can trust him. So Deuteronomy 15, 11, God says, For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Just what Jesus said. But God continues. Therefore... I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. And so apparently, God puts the answer to this prayer, give us this day our daily bread, into the laps of his own people. The entirety of Deuteronomy chapter 15, God describes his reset for society. That helps provide for daily bread. Now since it was May 17th, 2015, when we looked at Deuteronomy 15, I think it's safe to repeat myself. May I repeat myself? All right. Listen. 
This is a part, part, part of Deuteronomy chapter 15. God says, at the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his brother, of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. But there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, if only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. But you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. Because for this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. Pretty clear picture of God's heart. Pretty clear picture of God's way of making provision for daily bread. God goes even further. In addition to the sabbatical year that we've just read about, every seven years, he also required the year of Jubilee after every seven cycles of seven years, which is 49 years. They were to celebrate the year of Jubilee in addition to requiring all that we've just read. Additionally, all prisoners... All captives, all slaves were be to, to be released. They were to be set free, and all property, all property was to be returned to the original owner. Please imagine. Leviticus 25 says, The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. That's what the Lord says, the land is mine. You are strangers and sojourners with me. And so systems that developed in their culture, systems that were put in place over the course of seven years or 49 years, systems that might prevent people from being able to provide for their daily bread, systems that might prevent people from being able to rise out of poverty were reset, and God is the one who reset them. Listen, when manna from heaven is required, God can provide it. But when God's people are established in the promised land, God's normal way of providing daily bread would be through His people, through their obedient, compassionate hearts that led to their generous giving. I don't know that the year of Jubilee was ever celebrated by God's people. There is zero evidence that they ever kept even one year of Jubilee. In fact, the number of years they later spent in captivity was tied to the number of years of jubilee that they had not celebrated. It seems that God's people did not want that reset. They did not want to release people from indebtedness. They did not want to release captives. They did not want to give back land to its original owners. It seemed that they had come to believe that what they had belonged to them instead of being on loan to them from the Lord who said, for the land is mine. 
it seems that they did not want to open their hearts or their hands as God commanded. And so where there is hunger and where there's poverty, let's not blame God. People who have the privilege of praying, our Father who art in heaven, also because of the goodness and grace of God, have the privilege of being the answer to that prayer, give us this day our daily bread. But God's people miss the opportunity to live out that goodness and grace. As long as there are poor people, God's people always have opportunity to make the goodness and the grace and the compassion of God visible, live, and in color. God's people have the opportunity to show just how different knowing and loving God can actually make you and how that, in turn, can actually change culture. But again, they miss the opportunity. It's a bit discouraging, isn't it, to recount the history of God's people, people that he loved, people that he called to be his treasured possession, though they were the least of all people. And so we come now to the second question. What hope do we have? What hope do we have to be any different? You know the answer to the question. It starts with a J. What's the answer? <laughs> Christians usually get that right off the bat. What's the answer? Jesus. He's our only hope. So we're going to go back to Acts 2. We've already read it this morning. It's in your bulletin under the prayer of confession. And Acts 2 describes the brand new church. Pentecost, the coming of the Spirit of God, has just happened. And thousands upon thousands of people have come to faith in the resurrected Jesus. And the good news and the good hope for us is that their faith is really alive. The good news is that the newly arrived Spirit of God, listen, it's making their profession of faith more than just words. The Spirit of God is changing them, changing how they think, changing how they act, changing how they live. Look at it, Acts 2, 42, at that second paragraph. This is what God's people did. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Wow! I don't know if what Luke presents here is just a list of the activities of the early church or if it is actually a chronology of those activities. For example, devotion to the Word, followed by fellowship, followed by breaking of the bread, followed by the prayers in that order. But I do know this. The Spirit of God inspired the writing of this chronology. And watch this. When we follow the chronology into the next verse, we read, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Listen, if Luke is writing a chronological account, then all came 
before the miracles. Now, we put it the other way around, don't we? If we could see a miracle, ah, then we would be in awe. The miracle will inspire us. But that's not the order here. Look at the order. The awe follows their worship. The teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers, and then awe came. It's interesting that Luke calls them the prayers. If you have the ESV, it's, it's one of the only translations that retains that definite article, the, that's found in the Greek text. So listen, it, it seems to indicate that prayer in worship was not just spontaneous. It wasn't just extemporaneous, but it also included, quote-unquote, the prayers. Apparently, there were form prayers or known prayers that the church recited together. So where does my mind immediately go? Was one of the prayers the early church prayed the Lord's Prayer? And if so, is praying that prayer in worship what calls them all to have all things in common? Is praying that prayer together in worship what calls them to distribute what they had so that no one had need? Could worship be that powerful? Could worship change people just that much? Could it inspire and empower them to be the church that God had always intended His people to be? It seems so. Because if we follow the chronology, verse 46, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. What hope for us. Their hearts were glad and generous, and therefore there was food for all, and the church grew, and the kingdom of God advanced. Look what's possible through a living faith in Jesus that is powered by the Spirit of God. Look how the lavish grace of God in Jesus poured out on these people, turned them into compassionate, giving people. The church did not look to the 1% to give an extra 2% or 3%, depending on how much they had. No, all who had partaken of the bread of life, those who had worshipped Him deeply, became compassionate people, who gave so that none would be in need. And so when we are praying, give us this day our daily bread, we are asking the Lord to make us dependent on Him. And we are asking Him to make us content with what He gives. And, and we are asking how we might be the answer to the prayer in someone else's life. And we have the hope that the Spirit of God will answer through us. We can see before our eyes what can happen among those who love Jesus. And so we have hope, and the hope is Jesus within us. Let's go to the third question. The third question is this. Why must we pray this prayer often? Why? Why must we pray this prayer often? So now I want us to fast forward 20 years. 
from Acts chapter 2. Churches are growing up a little bit. Things are becoming familiar. Kind of figuring out how to live the life of faith. Children have grown into adults and parents have become grandparents. So we find ourselves in the church at Corinth. And Paul writes them this letter because he's gotten a report from the way that church is worshiping. And so he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. But in the following instructions, I cannot praise you. For it sounds as if more harm than good is done when you meet together. See, see something not right has happened in worship, to worship. When you meet together, you're not really interested in the Lord's Supper. For some of you hurry to eat your own meal without sharing with others. As a result, some go hungry while others get drunk. What? Don't you have your own homes for eating and drinking? Or do you really want to disgrace God's church and shame the poor? What am I supposed to say? Do you want me to praise you? Well, certainly, well, I certainly will not praise you for this. What happened to the heart of compassionate giving? Why do some in the church now seek to shame the poor instead of compassionately give to them? I think at least part of the answer must be in verse 20. When you meet together, you're not really interested in the Lord's Supper. Or as the ESV puts it, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. See, they have made the Lord's Supper something other than it really was. Their purpose for gathering has somehow changed. Their interest is no longer centered on what is most important. The Lord Jesus Christ, His life, His death, His resurrection. Instead, their, their interest is a different place. It's, it's no longer in proclaiming the gospel as they partake of the Lord's Supper and meditating on the mystery of it and the means of grace that it is. Instead, the church has become like the world with its class distinctions and self-indulgence. Some got drunk in church. All the Baptists just passed out. That's why we've got to pray this prayer daily. Because we see what happened in the church at Corinth. We see the potential danger. We see what the church can become. And so we have to stop and ask, what is our purpose when we gather for worship? Where does our interest lie? These are vital questions. Because it appears that having a heart of compassion like God has It appears that having a desire to give, as God desires to do, it's closely tied to and dependent on our corporate worship. So worship can't be an autopilot event. It takes focus on the right purpose, or should I say the the right person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus knew what he was saying when he taught us to pray. Pray Pray daily. We are in a battle to keep our focus, our attention, 
our interest on Christ and not ourselves, especially when we worship. And it is our rightly focused worship, seeing the compassionate Christ that makes us compassionate. And our compassion then compels us to give to those in need. And so we need to see that we are in a battle. Never forget, give us this day our daily bread is a prayer. And prayers are very often battle cries. Lord, help us. Help us make earth more like heaven. A daily prayer asking God to make us other than we would be. A daily prayer asking the Lord to keep us focused, keep us interested, keep our attention on what's really important. And so we need to pray for our church in this area. We need to pray for our deacons. Do you all know that our deacons are great guys? Deacons, y'all stand up. Just deacons that are here, stand up. Deacons, come on. Where's Kent? The other Kent. There are five of them here today. All right, y'all, y'all sit back down. Your brothers. Look, but look, these guys, what hearts they have. Too often they deal with peeling paint and broken windows in a 180-year-old building. But guess where their heart is? Their heart is to lead our congregation in this area. And so we need to pray for them, that they would lead us in knowing how to be the answer to this prayer. We need to pray for our community group. Stand up if you're in a community group. If you're in a community group, stand up. Oh, that's more like it. Y'all, boy. Okay, y'all sit back down. These are our community groups. We, we, we need to, to, to pray for them because we say that our community groups are families on mission together. All of us in this room, we know, we know that we live in a city of great need. And so we need to pray that God will lead us to that need. We need the Lord to show us what partnerships we as a church need to make. And we need to pray that the Lord will will bring true diversity to this church, which I believe true diversity is socioeconomic much more than racial. Because look, poverty is found among people of every race and every color. And wealth is found among people of every race and every color. And so the church is the place to bring them together, right? After all, the gospel is simply this. One poor beggar, no matter how large the bank account, telling another poor beggar where he found bread. That's the gospel, isn't it? One poor beggar telling another poor beggar where he found bread. How are we going to do it? I don't know. It's vexed me for years. God's going to have to show us. And so guess what? Will you pray? We pray that the Lord will show us. He's got to show us who we need to be as a church so that one day, Someone with no daily bread is worshiping and praying right beside us. We cannot abdicate our responsibility to other people that we believe 
have more than we have. You and I must be people of compassion who give. You and I must be the answer to the prayer. Give us this day our daily bread.